Welcome to the Wildlife Experience. This is your host, Andrew Austin. In this episode, I interview Dr. Marissa Tejas. Um, Marissa is a crocodilian biologist. Um, her background working with crocodilians started with uh, studying parasites in crocodilians. And then she founded the Crocodile Research Coalition, um, which is a nonprofit down in Belize um, that is dedicated to the conservation of crocodilians in Belize and other wildlife. Um, my very first time doing research with wildlife was with Marissa, and she's definitely a mentor of mine. And um, it was really just an honor to have her on and talk about her life and uh, discuss various conservation topics, especially when it comes to crocodilians. And uh, just all around a, a really good time. Um, and I think you guys will enjoy it. Uh, so now I bring you Dr. Marissa Tejas. I'm here with Dr. Marissa Tejas. Uh, Marissa, thanks so much for being here. Of course. <laughs> of course. My, my unofficial croc mom slash hero. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Anything for you, Andrew. Yeah. I, I never would have thought I would have you on my podcast when I was your intern like five years ago. <laughs> what what why I, I mean i never would have thought i would have had a podcast in general oh but, okay okay uh, yeah i mean you're so shy felt, yeah i was so shy and worthless at the time <laughs> i break out of my shell <laughs> all right um you drinking white claw always drinking white claw <laughs> that was your question right about yeah yeah okay i thought, and thought i heard just you drinking just making sure i heard you right um all right, let's uh let's start out with uh, well tell tell us what you do first, I guess. Currently, uh, then we'll go currently uh, present. <laughs> I mean, uh, prior to what you do now. Yeah. All right, so I am the executive director and the co-founder of the Crocodile Research Coalition. We are based in Southern Belize, and our mission is to promote the conservation of crocodiles, their habitat, as well as adjacent wildlife throughout Central America and the Caribbean through research, education, and community involvement. And community involvement is really important for us. I think if anything, we do more outreach and create more programs that involve the community, whether it's our local community or students, just because something that I always say is conservation is not just about wildlife. It is about people. If you want the long-term success of a conservation program, you need to get the people involved. The people need to be the stewards of the local habitat, of the environment. You need to build pride in the species that are surrounding them. You need to get them involved. So as just as much research that we do, we do just as much community outreach, if not even more. That's becoming very obvious. Um, like last time I was down there, like we'd be driving down the street in the middle of Belize and people know you, <laughs> you know, people <laughs> are embracing you in that, in that country and all your work, um, and the work of the CRC. So yeah, that's, that's really cool. Um, so there's that let's back up to, uh, how you got to this point <laughs> from the beginning, <laughs> the very yeah. beginnings of your career, your the very, career. <laughs> the very beginning. So yeah. we're going to, when I was like five years old, um, so I, I'm originally from Los Angeles, California. There is, maybe we have some crows, some lizards where I was growing up. Uh, 
my mom is very much a city woman, but I was always, I always had this fascination. I was just born with this love of wildlife, this connection to nature. And I think that comes from my father's side, even though my parents separated when I was very young, my father was very involved in my life. But I think that connection to nature and wanting to be a proper steward of mother earth came from my dad's side, which are Apache. And on that side of the family, I come from a line of medicine women. So there's this innate, um, this innate earning yearning in me in which I, I want to contribute to a strong community and also healing, whether that for me, not so much people per se, my dad, you know, my dad went the route of the traditions of our family in which he is now a doctor, but I steered more towards wildlife. And I mean, honestly, I, I work in wildlife rehab and triage. Now I'm planning to go back to school to get my vet tech license at least. Um, so in a sense, I I'm continuing the traditions of my ancestors, but more just with the wildlife. But when I was um, five years old, my dad, it was like Christmas or my birthday. And my dad, I just remember I wanted like a Barbie doll or a My Little Pony. And my dad gave me this stack of books, you know, and I'm thinking as a little kid, what the fuck is that? (laughs) I didn't say that because I didn't know what the F word was, yeah. but it was the equivalent because yeah. um, it was just a single stack and like skinny stack. And I opened it up and it was three books. It was a book about the American Civil War, a book about World War II, and then a book about sharks. And my dad always said he did not want to raise a little girl. He just wanted to raise a well-rounded, intelligent human being. My dad did not see male, female. It was just, he wanted in his eyes. And again, I think this is coming from that indigenous tradition is just trying to create um, someone that would contribute back to the community. Mm -hmm. And in regards to this book with sharks, that is the book that I just was attracted to. And I remember reading that book inside and out. At seven years old, I could tell you every shark species. I could tell you scientific names, diet range. I fell in love with sharks and I wanted to become a great white shark researcher. But that whole idea of the predator. So that got me really interested into predators because in this shark book, it discussed how this shark is endangered. That shark is threatened. People kill them out of fear. And I just didn't understand how can you kill something if it's not doing anything malicious to you? How can you kill something without knowing it? I just thought that was very ignorant of people. So I remember just getting really involved with um, wanting to learn more about predators. Do you hear the rain in the background? Yeah, yeah, I can hear it. (laughs) (laughs) It's like- I'm gonna get some calls. I can close the windows if that would be better. No, no, it's fine. It's not affecting the audio. Oh, it's not that I bad. I can okay. barely hear it. Yeah, you're good. All of a sudden, it's just like, yeah, we're supposed to be in the dry season. <gasps> Something <laughs> called climate change. I have no idea when the dry and rainy seasons are anymore. So uh, going back to the great white sharks. So that got me really interested about predators. And I wanted to become an advocate for these animals that 
people just hated and disliked and wanted just to kill when the animal was not doing anything. And that, I mean, that was me learning about the issues with lions, with crocodiles, with snakes, with, you know, all these different types of predators. I just did not understand. But my whole thing was I was going to be a great white shark researcher. And it was when I was about 15 years old. I remember I was in high school and these girls, like everyone knew I was all about wildlife and I wanted to work with wildlife. Like one of the things I used to say to people just so that they understood my, like my attraction to my love towards me wanting to go into nature and getting out of the city was like, one day I'm just going to go run naked with the lions in Africa. I don't know why I would just tell people that. And it was just because I just, for me, it was like, I want to be one with nature. I want to be one with wildlife. And so um, I remember these girls coming up to my locker, Marissa, there's this guy from Australia and he's like jumping on crocodiles. And he's like talking about how we need to save them. Like, have you seen his show? And I mean, this is like, this is during the time that cable was really expensive. My family, we did not have the money for that. And I was like, well, I'll look him up. You know, there was no internet. So it was like, well, I guess I'll look him up next time at a friend's house who has cable. And I remember going to a friend's house and I saw a show of Steve Irwin and his passion, his love for these animals, it just transcended into me. I mean, in just a snap of a finger, I, I decided that is the animal I'm going to work with. That is the animal I'm going to be an advocate for. So it was just watching one show of his And it just completely turned my life around. And for many of us that work with crocodiles, especially around my generation, a lot of us became interested in these animals because of Steve Irwin. Now, many of us don't necessarily agree with some of the methods. Like now that I know better, there's some of the stuff that he did on his shows and I get it. It's a show and entertainment, but I would, I don't do that when we go out and capturing or doing our research with crocodiles and so i know there are certain colleagues of mine they're like they hate to say that they were you know inspired by steve and i'm like (laughs) man when we first met you said like who cares like who cares like the man i mean made his passion was his passion was so contagious it was so contagious it's crazy i don't know how to explain it either it was like it was like a flip of a switch for me too you know, yeah. I knew I liked wildlife, but then I started watching his show. And, um, I think at first it was on like VCR tapes, like found one at blockbuster or something and <laughs> like just blew my mind, you know? Yeah. I mean, his passion for what he was doing, even though, again, many of us, Oh, we wouldn't necessarily do that now and stuff. And that's okay. Right. We learn yeah. as we go. We we've, grown in this particular career but just you can't deny like you just can't deny that this man left a legacy and in a sense i'm part of that legacy you're part of that legacy a lot of my colleagues are part of that legacy we would not be doing what we are doing now if it wasn't for steve irwin and so that's why like i don't care i'll say (laughs) yeah i'm doing this because of steve irwin you know like it's just so funny now it's some people are like oh no i can't say that whatever, whatever. Yeah. You're here because of Steve Ruin. <laughs> sit down, just sit yeah. down. Like when he yeah. had, um, 
around the time that he like passed away, wasn't he about to get involved with the CSG specialist group? And yes. So for those that are listening and don't know the CSG, the CSG is the crocodile specialist group. It is part of the international union for conservation of nature, the IUCN, um, amongst within the IUCN, you have the species survival commission. And I can't remember how many different groups, but I mean, there's, there's groups. So we have the crocodiles, we have the shark group, we have the pangolin group, there's a fungi group. There's, I mean, groups for so many animals and a lot of members within this group. So there's about, I think 10 to 12,000 members internationally now part of the IUCN. So when you hear about uh, the Orinoco crocodile is critically endangered, uh, certain shark species are endangered or something's threatened, that status comes from members in that group, from the experts in that group. And so I am a member of the crocodile specialist group and I am the sub-regional chair for Central America and the Caribbean. All that means is that I'm in constant contact with various researchers throughout this region, whether it be government officials, professors, researchers from NGOs. And so it's kind of like, I'm kind of always on tabs of what's happening. Does anyone need assistance in trying to find funding for a project? Um, They need advice or consultation from various members of our group, stuff like that. So there was hesitation. There was hesitation with Steve Irwin at first, um, going back to your comments. And it just... The reason for that was you had a lot of people that were for ranching of crocodiles and Steve Irwin was very much against that. And his family is still very much against purist, very purist conservationist. Yes. Hands off conservation, which doesn't necessarily work for certain communities. No, not at all. Not at all. I, it's kind of elite to where, you know, that there's a culture or a community that let's say have utilized crocodiles for generations and they've utilized utilizing crocodiles as part of their culture and through colonization a lot of these cultures lost the ability to have that type of connection and you know, the crocodiles were a source of protein for them uh, and again part of ceremonial practices and so as ranching was in a sense reintroduced to some of these communities that have helped them in economically. So now there's money going back into the communities. And so not only are they receiving money, but they're also now able to reconnect to a part of their culture that they lost due to colonization. And I think that's something that gets missed a lot when you have these discussions between, as you were saying, like these purists or these conservationists that are very much against the sustainable use of certain wildlife um, and you know those that want to, that are pro-sustainable use is a lot of times it's all money. And I know that people say the world revolves around money. Okay, I get that, but let's look at the cultural aspect because I know from my personal experience is when I've just started to bring on the table more of the cultural aspect of sustainable use it does seem to open people's eyes. And even similar to what we saw here in Belize with COVID and what 
uh, many people in the tropic areas experienced was you saw an increase of illegal hunting of wildlife. And that is because especially, I mean, this whole region, Central America and the Caribbean, we are dependent on tourist dollars. COVID happens, there's no tourists coming, people lost jobs, people can't put food on the table. And yes, you know, you have the supermarkets that are open and certain people are still able to work, but overall people don't have money to go to the store and buy cattle meat or pork or chicken. They need to live off the land. And even still culturally, you still have a lot of people living off the land. So that's when you started to see an increase I know here in Belize and a lot of places, an increase of illegal crocodile hunting. Mm -hmm. But what am I going to tell these people? I'm sorry, this is absolutely against the law. Your little daughter's stomach needs to keep rumbling because you can't, no, you can't, you, you can't hunt this animal. Yeah. You know, it's, it was desperate times. And so there were a couple of things I just had to let go because at the end of the day, people are, are hungry. They don't have the money. And even still, now that the economy is coming back, a lot of people cannot afford to go to the market in a lot of these developing countries and pay for cattle, for, for cow meat, for chicken, for pork, vegetarian burgers. Pfft, yeah, <laughs> but that's not happening in this region, you know? And so- And people don't understand this from more of these, you know, what people would say first world countries. And then again, going back to the cultural aspect, you know, I I do know that the Maya here, they um, utilize crocodiles for very ceremonial purposes. And yes, it is illegal, but I mean, it became illegal when you think about it compared to the Maya culture fairly recently, these people have been utilizing crocodile meat for hundreds, thousands of, you know, uh, of years of their culture. And so now an outside culture is going to step in and say, you can't do this. I mean, that is a a slap of the face to these cultures and people don't think of it like that. And that's why it's besides the economic part of all the sustainable use and all that, we need to also talk about the cultural aspect because I think, and especially in this world, people are so more careful um, and more open-minded in regards of, of assisting indigenous cultures in reviving or getting back their culture that was yeah. lost to colonization. <clears throat> and I think if that discussion of the cultural aspect of of certain communities utilizing wildlife again i think there would be there would be a compromise at the table and i do know like here in belize we have besides the maya we also have the creole um and the creole is a mix of european african and maya descent Mm -hmm. and so certain creole communities have also accepted this idea of consuming crocodile as a source of protein. And yes, it is a fairly um, new ethnic group. It's been around since the 1700s, but that has become part of their culture in certain communities. And so again, these are people that they don't have the money to go to the market and buy some type of protein source. Yeah, That's something we need to think about. Do you think ranching ever makes it to Belize? Farming and ranching ever makes it to Belize? 
Um, so I have proposed ranching. I haven't proposed farming because farming is more of you have one owner that oversees a whole farming system. And in a sense, it's kind of one person gets rich. Okay. Yeah. Um, whereas with ranching, you have certain community members that go out and get eggs or get small juveniles. It's more of a community effort. And then at the end of the day, the community is also the income that comes in. It gets spread more throughout the community. In addition uh, to that, you're also protecting habitat. Because you want to make sure that the crocodiles have good nesting habitat, that the juveniles have good habitat as well. So there's also this ranching has a nice positive umbrella effect where it protects habitat. And if you're protecting habitat, you're protecting a lot of other other projects underneath that. It can increase uh, juvenile recruitment as well, right? Because like you raise them up and release some percentage, some programs, right? Exactly. And I mean, that's, I mean, the whole uh alligator i mean a lot of people don't realize that alligator is one of the most successful conservation stories in history the alligator was going extinct it was considered critically endangered in the 70s and what there's like two million in just florida now i know i was speaking with someone in louisiana it's definitely they're definitely over two million in louisiana now wow that's crazy and now you even have some scientists discussing they're the whole idea of this ranching system and also a little bit of the farming. It got so good that there's probably more alligators now than there were historically. Wow. That, yeah. I, I, I've, I've known there are other examples like white-tailed deer and like some waterfowl species that are more abundant now because of European settlement and things we've done to the landscape. I never thought of that about alligators or if that was even possible that they're more abundant than pre-European settlement numbers. Yeah. That's crazy. I believe it. Um, so we, uh, we, we, we branched off of Steve Irwin. Uh, oh, sorry. So yeah, no, it's good. Um, we'll, back, we'll backtrack our, our, our tangents here. Um, so Steve Irwin, um, had a problem with the ranching and stuff, but which was unfortunate, but unfortunate. And he, but the thing was, it sounded, um, from the conversations I've had with people that were speaking with him, it does seem that he was starting to understand yeah. the idea of the ranching. Science, the science of it. It's a very the easy science. to manipulate populations and do it sustainably. Yeah, exactly. And then it did seem that there was this, okay, like, I'm ready. Like, he was about... <laughs> to get his invite letter and then unfortunately he passed yeah. away that was a very sad day yes my parents like came into my room it was like very serious <laughs> told yeah me. i i remember my phone blowing up and my friend Teresa was actually on the boat when he passed oh, away wow. so she is a jellyfish expert and she was a grad student at that point, I believe. And there was, she studies box jellies. And Ooh. I guess they wanted to film during a mass box jelly migration or something like that. It's just like, there's certain times of the year, there's just tons of box jellies in this area. And so uh, I believe it was box jellies. And so her 
advisor. I mean, it's just similar to, you know, people here, they can spot a manatee miles away, or they can like see a, you know, fish coming. Mm -hmm. So Teresa and her advisor, they're able due to something with the, how the waves are, the water is, they can be able to detect when, you know, possibly this big clump of jellyfish are going to be coming through. And then they would give, you know, the, the cameraman and Steve Irwin enough notice to get on the boat. Yeah. And so she said there was two boats and she was on the one that was furthest from him. And she, you know, they're looking out, looking out. And then she just started hearing screaming and she looked over and it was just, she just said, she just saw tons of blood in the water mm. and then saw them pulling Steve Irwin onto the boat. But she got to hang out with him like earlier that day. Like she, you know, she wasn't a huge fan um, as most Australians were. <laughs> weren't. Uh, Americans loved him, but Australians not, not the same. No. And so, but, you know, she said she, he was very nice, you know, very, she had great conversations with him. And she, there's this great picture. Uh, one of the photographers, I guess they were, they were sitting on something and both of their feet were hanging and it's just their feet. But is there something very artistic about this yeah. picture? And she's posted a couple of times on the anniversary just because yeah. she's like, I'll never forget that day, you know? And then it was one of those, she, for her, she's like now realizes like I was, I got to hang out with a, a legend that will never die. Yeah. Like his name will always, and she just now understands how, what a special moment in time that she actually had with him, with Steve Irwin. Yeah. Did you tell me that, he like um he would like just give money out to like grad students that needed money for a research project or or something like that did you tell me that maybe somebody else did like he was very very generous that. with his money like someone like will approach like some grad student approached him and they like needed funding or something he's just like yeah i'll give you whatever you need to do your wildlife research i heard that from that, somebody <laughs> that i do know he was very big on just buying plots of land that yeah and that's a lot of his yeah. legacy is just that alone, you know? Yeah. Buying that land for conservation. Yeah. So much to say about Steve Rowan. I wonder what it'd be like now if he was still here. <laughs> <laughs> we need him right now. <laughs> there, <laughs> <laughs> there it is. It does seem um, it's time for another, another role model possibly or just some someone else that a generation could look up to yep. um i mean the the older generations had david Attenborough, jane goodall and granted like we still have jane goodall like i mean people still know our generation know david Attenborough. Yep. um but yeah it it does seem like there's it's time to have someone that has that passion and that ability to inspire others to get their teeth into conservation, yeah. you know, sink their teeth into conservation as the CRC would say, um, and just really inspire that next generation. And it's interesting because I, I have a lot of friends in Hollywood TV networks okay. and it sounds it sounds like there is interest in finding or like doing some other wildlife shows. And I did hear there was someone, some big executive was getting hired. I can't remember what 
um, uh, if it was like Animal Planet or Discovery, but like they're ready to bring it back to the Steve Irwin days. Oh, wow. So again, trying to find someone or some people that again, can truly inspire this generation and the next generation in involving, you know, getting them interested in wildlife and, and nature. And I mean, hopefully even then, um, just getting people to become more involved, whether it's internationally or just around their home. Yeah. And it can't be a Steve Rowan wannabe because there's never going to be another Steve. No, no, it it needs to be someone that's, that's okay. Very original. Yeah. yeah. And has a lot of passion, you know, and like Steve just had a way of, of uh, like his passion just came through. I don't know. It just, just get excited when you hear him talk, even non, even people that aren't really into wildlife loved him. Everybody loved him. He was just somebody everybody could love. He had that charisma as well. Um, and it was just genuine and true. Whereas you do see these other people and it's very, I get it. He had this formula that just, it grabs people's attention and you see, you know, whether it's been past TV shows or, um, just on other social media platforms or whatever you see, you can see someone it's like, you're, you're, you're trying too hard to be like, again, there's yeah. never going to be, be your own, time. be your own character, you know, be your own, be yourself. Be yourself. Absolutely. You're going to pursue yourself. that sort of thing. People appreciate, mm-hmm. uh, authenticity so much. Exactly. People want to see the authentic person. Yeah. So we can get back to your, uh, your life. Um, so Steve Rowan inspired <laughs> you <laughs> and then, uh, we can go. Steve, yeah. So Steve Irwin, and then I went to college and I double majored in zoology, obviously because of the wildlife and cultural anthropology. And I, the cultural anthropology, I focused on, um, which it just, at that point, there was no such thing as ethnozoology. So looking at the interaction between people and nature. And so, and where I was at at UCSB, I remember just talking to some of the anthropology professors and it just, I couldn't really do anything like that. I guess it just, that wasn't their forte. So I actually, my thesis on my anthropology background was looking at the peyote ceremony in the Native American church in the United States. (laughs) I didn't know there was such a thing as a Native American church. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's a Native American church. And not not in like the... Not the type of church I'm thinking of, I guess. No, no, Called no. Not a no. church, but it was just a ceremonial place. It wasn't uh, yeah, like based weekly. on any kind of monotheistic religion. No, no, no. Yeah, it was definitely very much in celebration of, yeah, yeah. it was like a a bunch of, you know, in various um, places such as Oklahoma, right? You just, it's a melting pot of all these different Native American tribes. And so in a sense, the Native American church was just this, cocktail of the various ceremonies and deities of the of the native americans in that area that's cool you also went to europe right for some anthropology yeah so (laughs) so i lived in northern ireland i lived in belfast for 18 months 20 months and it was because i wanted to do a study abroad 
I really wanted to do a study abroad. And originally I was going to do it in Costa Rica and just get my, all my wildlife experience. I think I would have lived there for a full school year, but I've always had this love for Ireland. Why? Uh, which what, is, what about Ireland? I With The Nordic culture or something. I don't know anything about like that area. I, I, I've always just oh. loved the Irish. Maybe it's that Gaelic culture. It's uh, a Gaelic culture. Is that, is Nordic and Gaelic di- a lot different? I don't know anything yes. about it. Okay. Yeah. Know. I'm very so, <laughs> Well, cause the other thing is when I was in high school, I was senior class president. And when every high school is, gets an invite, oh, I presidential classroom. That's what it's called. It's presidential classroom. And it's a program through the white house to inspire slash give a foundation to future leaders. And so since I was class, since I was class president, my school chose me to apply for this particular program. Okay. And so again, every high school in the United States gets this invitation and I got accepted. And so there was different programs I could choose from. And I chose the one where it was an international, in a sense, symposium. And so people from various countries, um, high schoolers came to Washington, DC for a week or so. Um, And again, it's, inspire future leaders, give yourself a foundation. And, uh, while I was there, I met these guys from Northern Ireland and I just clicked with them. (laughs) I, 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 we became best friends in like two days. Like I just hung out with these Irish dudes. I'll never forget. (laughs) They were like, Marissa, we want to experience the American culture. Like what can we do? Cause I was like, you know, the evenings we kind of had off and I was like, we're going to go to McDonald's. I'm going to get you guys hamburgers and we're going to watch Jerry Springer. (laughs) (laughs) So that, and I just remember like I had this room of people. We all went to McDonald's and like, there was just like, I remember someone from Sri Lanka, from India, Haiti, uh, there was Venezuela. uh, There was, oh, he was, from Nigeria, I got them all watching Jerry Springer. <laughs> awesome, that's really cool. I would I would love to be in a room with people from that many backgrounds. That's really it was so amazing. It was so amazing. So, anyways, become best friends with these guys. Yeah. We continue to stay in touch. Wow. I went over to Ireland for a New Year's and I in Belfast, and I fell in love with Belfast. And I told yeah. those guys, I don't know how. But I'm gonna live here for a while. <laughs> I don't know how, but I'm gonna do it. Yeah. And everyone just kind of, they just, you know, why Ireland? But I, again, it was just, it was more of like the people that I met. That's what attracted me to Ireland. Yeah. So during my zoology, no, my my zoology and my anthropology degree, you know, you have to take certain classes at university. Yeah. I still had to take a genetics class, yeah. and I had to take some classes, obviously, for anthropology. And my friends in Ireland were going to the, to Queens University of Belfast. And I was like, I wonder if I can do my exchange program there. If I can get in, like, if I can get in, I'll go there instead of Costa Rica. 
Uh, it was mainly, I just wanted to hang out with these guys that literally became my best friends and they were across the world. And so I started looking though. So Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones was based off of three real life professors. And one of them was teaching at Queens University of Belfast, I found out. And I was like, fuck yeah, I want to learn from Indiana Jones. So I applied for the program and I got in because I just, you know, at that point in my head, yes, I really wanted to work with wildlife. I really wanted to work with crocodiles, but there's something that I've always just been so interested in that cultural connection between, between cultures, communities, and, and animals and, and nature. And so people are fascinating. Like we're, we're humans and we have a unique, like history, cultural history, evolutionary history. Yeah. Like if you like animals, it's, it makes sense that you like humans too, because you know, we're a very unique organism as well. (laughs) I mean, and there's just, I mean, there's so many different cultures in the world. And again, and there's just so many unique stories and, and um, other cultural folklore and aspects that have been kind of lost and like, and there's a lot of stuff that are getting revived now through archeological digs or anthropological finds. So anyways, uh, when I found out I I could be in a class with Dr. Jones, with Professor Jones, I was like, I'm going to fucking Ireland. (laughs) So that was super awesome. Um, And I learned so much more in the genetics class over there than I did at UCSB. So um, I retook genetics, but yeah, so lived in Ireland for a little bit, came back to, to UC Santa Barbara, and I finished my, my college degrees. Now I didn't know how I was going to get, how I was going to get to work with crocodiles at first. I was like, okay, maybe I'll work for some type of private organization. I was open to the idea of being a zookeeper. Cause I thought, well, you know, with zoos, they're starting to do more research projects. Like yeah. maybe I can do that. But I remember graduating and I said, I will never fucking go back to school again. I was like, <laughs> fuck that's academia. A, that's where I'm at. <laughs> Yeah. Fuck this shit. It's all bullshit. Like I'm never going back three years later. I'm at UCLA doing my my master's and my PhD, (laughs) but I needed that time. uh, I needed that time away. Uh, And that's what I tell a lot of the interns and students that I am mentoring or supervising do not feel like you have to rush into school, like going back to grad school go out, experience the world, because I feel the experiences I got while working at a wildlife rehab center, while working at the LA at the LA zoo, it gave me a stronger foundation and kind of opened my mind more that helped me get through my master's and my doctoral program. Uh, Additionally too, like it was going back to school, I was like, yes, this is what I want to do. This is exactly what I want to do. This is the path I'm taking where I have seen some people, there there are going to be some people that they can go just straight through. Good for you. But if you're not really a hundred percent, don't do it. Like don't waste the time. Don't waste the energy. Don't waste the emotional stress because I don't care how tough you think you are. Grad school is going to make you cry. You are going to have anxiety. You are going to have depression at some point. Like it is tough. And I know it's, 
I, I had more of those, those old school advisors. And I know nowadays advisors aren't as mean and tough, but there's still deadlines. So even if you have the nicest advisor out there, I still know people that are like having the panic attacks and the anxiety and like the depression, I'm not smart enough and all that. So, you know, you need to go in just knowing what you may experience, but also knowing like, fuck, yes, this is exactly what I want to do because that's what, where I was at when I was somewhat pushed by my supervisor at the LA zoo, like Marissa, I don't think this is for you. Like, I don't think the zookeeping world's for you. I think you're meant to go be a researcher. I think you need to go, you're a scientist. And I was like, a scientist, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm not a scientist. (laughs) Like I never thought myself like that. And you know, but when he said that, I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'm ready. I, I can do this. And also inside me a little bit, I always wanted my own business. Like I know, like, I know I've been a good employee. Like I, I know I've been a good employee, but there's also just that part of me that I was like, I don't want anyone to tell me what to do. Like, yeah. <laughs> there is, there's still that little yeah. piece of me. I'm a little too strong headed for that shit. So I knew going to school would give me the strong foundation as well as the credit so that when I did start my NGO, it would be easier to, to get funding. Um, you would have a little bit more recognition and you'd have a little bit more respect. Yeah. And in all honesty, having the letters behind your name, especially when you're a little young, I, it's, it helps. It helps people believe what you're saying. Cause like, well, no, she's a doctor. Like she yeah. knows what she's talking about. You, so you never plan to stick with academia. You always plan to do NGO. The NGO. Oh yeah. Okay. I, and, uh, originally, I thought you just like were inspired later in life to just do that. <laughs> no, no, no. I I've always kind of wanted a sanctuary yes. and like that does go, um, God, I don't even know if my mom would still have it. When I was about seven years old, I, I said I was going to have a sanctuary <laughs> and it was going to be a mix of, and like, I drew it out and everything. I, I like made my, my whole um, infrastructure plan. It was going to be for wildlife, but also for dogs. Oh, wow. Got to save the dogs. I was seven, <laughs> I was seven. Yeah. you know, a lot of the animals would probably eat the dogs now that I know that, but you know, in my head, Oh, everyone would get along and it'd be a dog sanctuary too. Yeah. Uh, Tell us about the work you did for your PhD. So I, and this is something else I will tell people. I mean, and again, not, it just depends, I guess, on the personality, knowing what grad school would be. Cause I had friends that were graduate students when I was an undergrad and I saw what they went through. I told myself, if I'm going back to grad school, I'm studying what I want to study. I'm cause sometimes when you apply for grad school, it's very, okay, well you have to do something that we're already doing in the lab yeah. or you're doing a, a project that I started a couple years ago and you can't necessarily do what you're passionate about. And I never understood how you can do something when I you're not. I couldn't do that. That's that's. I thought very little about grad school, but yeah, if I ever did it, it would have to be something that really inspired me to do. Exactly. Like, that I would very be very passionate about. Where you're willing 
to sleep in your office, when you're willing to go a day or two without showering because you haven't left the lab and you haven't left campus, something where you're going to cry all night, but you're going to get up in the morning and go back to lab to finish something yeah. up. You know, so for you, that was studying parasites and, and crocodilians. And that was me studying <laughs> of all things. <laughs> so, and how that got me, how I got into that was I was stupid as a super senior at UC Santa Barbara. And I left some of the hardest classes my senior year. Mm. Stupid. And one of them was a parasitology class. And everyone talked about this is the class, like it's one of the hardest classes at UCSB. Yeah. There's all this like a lot of work Knowing and the, all that. The life uh, history of those those parasites and the life cycles yes. and all that. Life so cycle, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I left it to my last year in college. So anyways, I just remember the first day of class and, you know, sitting there, I was like, okay, this could be interesting. I left that class in love with parasites. And I left that course in love with parasites, how these little organisms can change the phenotype of an organism, how it can change the behavior in a sense, take over the body and make organisms zombies. Hey, guess what? Now we know a, co- a good percentage of cannibalism in animals, as well as in humans, it's due to parasites. Wow. Like these, these organisms are crazy. And I was like, this is so fucking amazing. And again, I'm still in love with crocodilians. And in my head, I wonder how parasites may have contributed to the insane immune system that we know of crocodilians, because we know about this co-evolutionary race between parasites and their host. And a lot of the immune responses that we see, even in humans, it's due to millions of years of this co-evolutionary race with certain bacteria and certain parasites. So my question was, how has parasites contributed to the evolution of the immune system of crocodilians and possibly other evolutionary aspects of crocodilians or other biological aspects of crocodilians? And I looked into it and there was nothing known. Perfect. There all there is just all we knew was this parasite species was found in this crocodile. And like there was nothing. So that's what I wanted to study. And I remember first reaching out to, to parasitologists and throughout the United States. And everyone's like, Oh, well, we don't study alligators or crocodiles. You gotta do what we're doing, which is a fish. And I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> and then it was contacting various crocodilian <laughs> professors. Hey, I want to study. Well, we don't do parasites. And like, for me, I'm like, okay, well, I could put a parasitologist on the committee, but no crocodilian professor in the United States wanted to take me because they're like, well, we don't do parasites. So I went to my parasitology professor at UCSB. My, at that point, you know, he hadn't seen me in three, four years, three years. And I was like, Armin, like, I need to find somebody. And I told him, I was like, look, I really... I I wanted to get away from UCSB. Oh, and then at that point too, I was like, I was still thinking about possibly still part-time as a zookeeper. Yeah. And um, so I was like, oh, look, I can't come here to UCSB. Um, I am working at UCLA. I'm like, do you think, do you know anyone at UCLA that will take me? He's like, oh, well, there's this guy, Donald Booth. 
and he's into reptiles and he's into, into parasites, contact him. And Don, all he said was, if you can find the funding, you can do whatever you want. I was like, oh, I'm going to find the funding. <laughs> and my never had to pay a cent for my master's or my PhD. Um, I got a lot of grants. I got a lot of funding for my research. And so my research ended up looking at the ecological and evolutionary relationship between alligators and their parasites. And one thing that I'll never forget was I, you know, for grad students, yes, you can make an impact. So I remember at the crocodile specialist group meeting in Louisiana in 2014, I presented in a sense, my favorite chapter. I, I had five chapters in my PhD and it looked at the concentration levels of heavy metals between alligators and their parasites. And one thing I discovered was parasites are actually accumulate. So they, they will actually have higher concentrations of heavy metal of heavy metals compared to the alligator. So what my collaborator and I found was that in a sense, the parasites are soaking in any heavy metals that the crocodilians are exposed to. And then they metabolize out the heavy metals. It takes the and burden off the host. It takes the burden off the host. So they're in a sense, making sure that the host stays alive because if the host dies, the parasites die. So they want to do whatever they can to help the host out. And so that was really interesting because in so many, in the previous years, there's been research about lead intake with alligators and they're like, oh, you know, we fed lead pellets, these alligators, and they're not showing any toxicity levels. Well, guess what? You want to know why guys it's because the parasites are in a sense, accumulating all the leads and taking it in for themselves to keep the, to keep the alligator alive. So if we truly want to understand what these alligators are exposed to, we need to look at their parasites. So we always talk about alligators being the sentinel species to understand various, various things that are happening in the ecosystem. Yeah. Well, we need to look at their parasites because the parasites are actually holding the true concentration levels of the alligators. And not only that, with that chapter, I also discussed how we were also finding um, alligators. So we also think about, oh, alligators can go ahead and they have, or crocodilians have the strongest immune, um, I'm not, sorry, stomach acid in the world. Well, when we were doing our studies, we're actually finding the parasites are breaking down the cartilage, the lead bullets. They, so the nematodes actually have this type of venom. So we need to go back. It might not just be sure the stomach acid, you know, it's, it's pretty acidic, Yeah. but it's most likely a combination of the parasites and the, uh, the acid, the stomach acid that helps to break down the prey items of alligators. So then we're also, I started also seeing the parasites assisting in the digestion of the crocodilians. And so I presented this at the 2014 meeting and the head vet came up to me. He's like, we need to send an email out that people need to start, stop deworming alligators and crocodilians in captivity because they have evolved this unique relationship with their parasites. 
we actually might be doing more harm to our captive animals by deworming them. Yeah. And that was just like, <laughs> like, crazy. that was fucking cool. You know what I mean? And I was just like, I'm just a stupid little grad student. And then, <laughs> you know, and like, I still get that, um, you know, st- I still get emails and stuff like that, you know, about that particular paper, because it was kind of, it was kind of revolutionary. And like, exactly. and I'm okay to say that, like, I'm yeah. really proud of that chapter from my PhD. So you're and, proud of your, the CRC and stuff, but that is really something you're very proud of overall in your career. Yeah, that was really, really cool. And again, just to have like these very veteran scientists and vets to be like, oh my God, you just blew our mind. I was like, ah. Tell, tell people what the field work looked like for that research. It wasn't glamorous. <laughs> 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 I, um, I think overall, I, I don't know how many alligators I dissected, uh, might've been close to 200. So, but yeah, it was going to Louisiana and Florida during the harvest, which is that August, September of the how year. That? Seeing that at first from, you know, an animal lover from uh, LA, <laughs> Oh, and, and being a vegetarian. Dead alligators getting loaded up into these places. <laughs> Must have been interesting. That was, it was super interesting. The culture and, associated with it and all the Cajuns and. Oh my God, that was so. Did you appreciate okay. the Cajun culture? I, I thought I wanted to move to Louisiana. <laughs> like I love, so I realized not so much Ireland. But, and I can understand why I love Belize. It's just Louisiana one is its own country. Yeah, that that just needs to be its own yeah. country. And then you get the Creole and you get that air of the Creole. It's a little bit of the wild West. Like in all honesty, Belize is a little bit of the wild West for many reasons. And I, I guess I am attracted. I was attracted to Louisiana and Belize because there's a little bit of a freedom. Um, I don't know how to explain it. Living I, closely to the land and just, yeah. Yeah. Not yeah. tied down in the city type. Yeah. And so but the Creole culture, like I just those guys cracked me up. I and then they're talking to me and I'm like, are you talking in English? Like <laughs> I, I remember I remember like every field season, like towards the end working with these guys, I could start really picking up. And then I remember my last year working with them, they were speaking some thick Creole to me. And I'm like, I don't know what you're saying. They're like, you've been hanging out with us. I'm like, I see you guys two to three months out of the year. Like, I like, I don't know. Like it. And so I would have like my students go talk to them if we needed something or we needed help because I was like, they'll only speak to me and they're thick Creole. And I was like, I don't understand them. Um, surely you were tempted to try alligator meat. I did. You're vegetarian. You did try it. Yeah. It's good. Right. It is. It's excellent. It It really is excellent. I've tried it before. And a nice po' boy. Oh yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. It was, it was really, really good. Um, but yeah, I, I loved, God, I love the Louisiana culture It is just so great. And the people there are just so nice. And that's something there was something about the Louisiana culture that reminded me a lot of Belize. And there's just this very warm hearted, um, just let's just have a good time. Party hard. Like, <laughs> yeah. 
Like I just, you Lots know, good times roll. Yeah, I loved it. I I absolutely loved it. But yeah, it was hours upon hours in the um, processing sheds and just yeah. taking out alligator guts. And you know, you are just full of stink. And yeah. I mean, after every season, I had to throw away clothes because it was like no matter how much I washed bleach, you just always had that faint smell of, of alligator death. Um, but (laughs) what, so what followed, um, your PhD, you finished your PhD. What was next after that? Okay. So, um, that's where we start getting into Belize. And so I actually first came to Belize in 2008 thinking I was going to do my PhD based off of crocodiles here. However, for what I wanted to do, I needed a bigger sample size. And that's when I contacted Dr. Ruth Elsie. So uh, I have to say Dr. Ruth Elsie, she's one of my biggest inspirations. Um, She is a very successful woman and she opened the door for me in the crocodile world. I would not be where I am in the CSG or probably even who I am if it wasn't for her. She's the Uh, alligator program leader in Louisiana, right? Yes. Yes. And she is so amazing with young scientists. So anyone that's listening here and they feel like they need someone to like open the door for, just give advice. Dr. Ruth Elsie, man, I just, words can't describe her. Like it it just. Her, she was kind of, she was kind of (laughs) scary. It's not that she's, I mean, she's just, she's a strong woman. Yeah. She is a People very... are intimidated by strong women oftentimes. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like, and she's, and she's just straight to the point. Yeah. And, you know, so I, I, I can understand why people are like, ah, oh, but she's just a very strong, very yeah. successful woman. Yeah. Um, there's no funny ground per se. And she's been doing it a long time. And she oh, had a, like played a large role in the, yeah like alligator conservation oh yeah yeah yeah. she's absolutely amazing one of your biggest Uh, mentors yes i she i mean she literally a big part of changing my life for the better that's awesome and so yeah it was because of her that i ended up doing my phd on the alligators mainly in louisiana but I kept side projects in Belize and I kept a good relationship with the government here as well as other organizations. So towards the end of my PhD in 2014, I felt like I still wanted to learn more. And um, I was interested in doing a postdoc. So I applied for a National Science Foundation postdoc where I would go back to where it all began at UC Santa Barbara with my mentor, Dr. Armin Curris. Now, getting the NSF, I did get the NSF graduate fellowship, but getting the NSF postdoc is even more difficult. And so I was like, I don't know if I'm going to get this, but you know what? I'm going to try. And that looked at looking at parasites and crocodilian habitat in, I put Costa Rica, Belize. There was one other country. I think I said Guatemala. Or it might've been a Caribbean country. I can't remember. I can't remember. It was too long ago. (laughs) So, um, and the reason I did that was I was appointed 
the my position with the CSG in 2013. And in my head, if I was going to make a positive impact in this region, I felt I needed to live here. Yeah. So my idea was there was these two different ideas was one, I get my PhD. I don't get the postdoc, but I'm just going to move down here and either try to get a job. But most, I was like, most like, I'm just going to open up a wildlife sanctuary. I was like, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to open up my wildlife sanctuary. Um, or two, do a postdoc of three years and slowly make the move down to, down to somewhere in this region. So that was my idea. And it was towards, I was, I remember it was maybe like April, May, 2014 was sometime I was down here in Belize and the wildlife officer at the time was like, Hey, Marissa, like you're going to get your PhD. What are your plans? I told him about the postdoc and said, yeah, like I, I really want to move down to this region. Um, I'm looking at, I was like, obviously I'm looking at Belize as a possibility. I was looking at El Salvador, Nicaragua, Jamaica, as well as Dominican Republic at that point to make a move and to establish my, uh, an NGO. Yeah. And that's when the wildlife <laughs> officer was like, well, why don't you just move to Belize? He's like, you work well with the government. Everyone knows you, you work well with communities. You work with other NGOs. He's just like, why start over somewhere else when it's just going to be smooth sailing for you to start? And he's like, and obviously you have our support and if, to get the ball rolling, it's going to be a lot easier. And I kind of like, I mean, of course, like that was in the back of my head in Belize, but like at the same time, I was like, well, do they, you know, this is the forest department. This is the forest department. Yeah. And so I just kind of, in my head, it's like, you know, if I'm not making that much of an impact, like, of course I'm going to look at, at other places and, but to have a government official open the door and be like, we could really use your expertise. I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So that was like that. And I just told him, I was like, well, let me see what's going on with this postdoc and all that. And so again, it was like this slow, moved to Belize and I ended up just concentrating my postdoc here in Belize. And I established the Crocodile Research Coalition in January, 2016. So we're about to have our six year anniversary. That's awesome. It's kind of cool. Like when you think about like, um, like your connection with the forest department there, they they are the top like natural resource federal, Mm -hmm. uh, managers in Belize. Right. Yep. And like you're directly involved and you can make a meaningful difference in that country and a country like the United States, like if you're going to try to make federal changes, that's just hard. You know, like there's yeah. so many layers and it's like going to Belize. It's kind of cool because you can you're like you have a direct impact on that country's federal wildlife sort of management through the CRC. Yeah. And I mean, that's the thing is like, I have worked really closely with them. Um, you know, I, they asked us to lead the countrywide survey of the Morelettes and the American crocodile here in Belize. I mean, it's, it's been a really good relationship. Like if I need to make tweaks on research permits, they're just like, okay, just write an appendix and not a problem. Yeah. You know, I, we can talk. Um, it, it's really nice. Like, yeah. and I think if anything, it's also helped me understand politics a little bit more. Cause that's mm. something that you are going to go into conservation, Part of it. depending on the route 
you need to be ready to be a politician. And that's one thing is that how I work with government here, local as well as national government. And then my other interactions that I have with other, um, with other countries, because I, I mean, I'm also um, have a good relationship with, with some of the officials from other departments in other countries and just, yeah, sometimes it's, you have to be a politician. And it was, I remember, you know, there's the Zodiacs or whatever of like a Taurus, you know, you're, you're, you will be an entertainer or a politician, or there was something else. I was like, I'm not going to be a fucking politician. Like what the (laughs) fuck? No, no, I'm, I've got to play politician, even just amongst little things. Like, you know, there's been a couple of things with some really big resorts here where they've done some really illegal stuff with wildlife or mangroves. And you just can't go in hot headed and like, I can't believe you cut down all these mangroves. I can't believe you let, you know, your workers take that dead croc to skin it and you know, you have to. <clears throat> what was the thing with Leonardo DiCaprio that one time? Ah, yeah. <laughs> That's a hot topic. <laughs> had a big issues with him at one point, right? Uh, yeah, with his place. I, I feel like, I don't know. I, I feel like if he, if we ever actually did meet face to face and he heard my name, he'll be like, you're the one. <laughs> I'm the one. Yeah. Um, I don't, I, like, I, I get celebrities yeah. and there are some that do a lot of good. He um, does some good. He really does some good. No, he does. He word. does. About conservation. Yeah. There are there are some celebrities that are very much involved in whatever they're passionate about. Um, now Leonardo DiCaprio, what I have learned, my experience with his whole development in Belize is he had a lot of money and he had this idea for a sustainable hotel for pretty much the richy rich. Okay. And he hired Pete architects and he hired a bunch of people and said, okay, this is all of my money. Go do something. And they probably gave him some updates here and there. So how involved? Probably very little. (laughs) Probably very little. So the issue was, it was Blackador Key near Ambergris Key. And they were going to, for any, any place here, if any resort is going to develop or if there's any type of big development, you have to have a community meeting with the nearest community. And if the community does not approve, the project is not going to go through. Yeah. And so like I've been part of community meetings where myself and some other biologists, we have said X, Y, and Z, those projects, nothing. So Belize is very good about that. That's good. Yeah. And so with Placador Key, there was a community meeting and I remember I wasn't going to go. And someone's like, no, Marissa, we need you to go. Like we, we need a scientist there in case there's any bullshit. So I was like, all right, I'll go, I'll go. And so they had these scientists that did biodiversity surveys of the island and, oh, we didn't see any tracks of crocodiles and we didn't see this and that. And, the, and so pretty much all these critically endangered animals, which means we can do whatever development we want. And I was like, bullshit. There's no fucking crocodiles five miles away from Amherst Key where there's a bunch of fucking crocodiles. Yeah. 
And so I'm like, I raised my hand and I said, how, how did you, you know, I'm, my expertise is crocodiles. I'm going to talk about crocodiles. Um, how did you do your surveys? Well, when we were looking for other wildlife, we just didn't see crocodiles. And I was like, do you know what a crocodile track looks like? Do you know what this looks like? And da, 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 da. no. And then I was like, by the way, where are you from? I'm from Spain. I'm from somewhere. I'm from France. I'm from the United States. I'm from Mexico. It's like, um, so is this your first trip to Belize? And they're like, oh yeah. And I was like, so you know nothing about how to identify our wildlife here. Yeah. Amazing. So your whole biodiversity survey is full of shit. Yeah. Like that's what I told him. And like, and then the main guy that like was to hire all these biologists, he's like, oh, we hired experts. And I was like, so you're saying all the ex, all the naturalists and experts in Belize were not good enough. Right. You're going to tell me that the fishermen, the fifth generation fishermen in this area don't know their fish. They don't know how to identify the sport fishing here. Yeah. You're telling me that you, your person knows more about the birding and the calls than our local or bird expert. I was like, are you saying we're all stupid? And I just like, I was like, this is fucking bullshit. Yeah. And I was just like, if you, I was like, this is a slap to our face. And I was like, this, like, if you truly want to understand about that local ecosystem, you need to hire people from Amherst care. You need to hire Belizeans. Yeah. And I was like, look, Belizeans are not completely against this, the black door key thing, but what you all just did, this is bullshit. And what, it, what even put more fire into all this, because I it was just like, it was so disrespectful for the local Belizeans. It was yeah. so disrespectful. And um, God, there was something else that they said. And I just was like, fucking, you're all bullshit. Like, I was, I was a little more professional, but yeah. they got it. Your <laughs> <laughs> point across. They got it. Because like, they came up to me afterwards. They're like, um, can we have your name and your email? And I was like, are you going to send someone to go kill me or something? <laughs> it's just, but it was because they put me in some database to contact me to get more involved with Black Adore Key after that. And so, but what happened was, I think Leonardo DiCaprio just got an Oscar or something like that. And he was talking about indigenous rights and the people police blew up and they're like, you're talking about, you're talking about indigenous rights when you like your people just called us indigenous like the indigenous people of Belize like you know idiots um we don't know anything about our natural wildlife that you have to bring outsiders that have never been to Belize to look and understand our wildlife and then not only that the waters like there's no private waters here and so you had fishermen that I mean this has been their sport fishing spots for decades and you had security guards saying that they were going to shoot them oh from God. the islands, that they couldn't do their sport fishing there anymore. And so like all this is going off on Twitter and like yeah. everything else. And so Black Adore very much um, backed off a little bit. I worked with them a little bit, but they didn't like what my data said, which kind of nulled everything that they were trying to like <laughs> prove. And so um, they, they quietly can, they built. Hired- <laughs> they built they built it it's still not being built there's still so much oh, it's ongoing okay so many issues uh-huh. so many issues and like there was something else that 
And again, I don't know if it's actually him that's tweeting from his Twitter page, but he said something and this was like a year or two ago and something else had just happened at Blackador and I kind of ripped into him on Twitter. Um, I don't know how you could be a biodiversity advocate and developer at the same time, you know? Like there's, there's a way to do it, but how they've been going about it, it's so wrong. And those keys out there, those are ecologically unique ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Assuming they're, I don't know how big the the island is, but, and what it supports, but. But it's, it is also like, it's, for, for me, someone was like, oh, he can donate you a lot of money. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be getting money and then feeling guilty because I know this is almost like hush money. Like yeah. that's, that's going against like the principles and morals that I grew up with my family. Yeah. And it's like similar to something that had happened around Placencia Lagoon. There's a development known as Harvest Key here that the whole community was against. I mean, they ripped this beautiful mangrove island that was also there was a lot of crocs there but it was a hotbed for manatee um feeding and for resting and for mating and so they rip it to shreds for the fucking cruise ships and then they reach out and they're like oh we would be interested in funding this and that and but you can tell like they're greenwashing yeah and like they offered me slash crc a lot of money and i was like i'm not taking your blood money like Uh, you're like at the end of the day it's about principles and morals and you're not going to hush me when i know you're screwing up our local ecosystems you're screwing up the livelihoods of my local community the community that has completely accepted me my community is more important than your money and so i was like no and that's and so like i've (laughs) i've a lot of developers don't like me because (laughs) i take their money must feel really how (laughs) immersed you are and very much a part of that Belizean community now it must be something you're also proud of huh yeah no it's great like I have I mean there's so many people I consider family here I feel very accepted you know I I get a lot of people like ah whatever you're one of us like you know and I think it's because they see me fight like even fight against the Americans and I I, because you do get and it happens everywhere in the world right right immigrants come in and they might not be respectful to whatever it is. If there's a cultural significance, if it's nature and they might build it, they might destroy it. It happens a lot of times with immigration, especially immigrants with a lot of money. And unfortunately, no, the Belizeans speak out. A lot of Belizeans speak out, but sometimes I can tell there's a hesitation. I'll be like, I'll speak for you. Or like, you know what I mean? Like I'll say something against this person. I don't care. Like I, and I think speaking out for my community, I think that has been what has grabbed, what has allowed them to accept me. But I mean, I, I mean, I, I moved to Belize. It's not like I was running away from America or anything like that, but there was, there's something about Belize. And then in this region that I've just felt a little bit more comfortable um, in regards of living, I feel like this is more of my culture. This is, I, I just feel a little bit of, this is more of who I am. Um, it just, yeah. And especially Belize, there is that connection to nature yeah. that you see so many people have like, yeah, they're not out doing research with crocodiles or manatees or birds or anything, but there is this understanding that the environment is important for us. It's still a very strong indigenous presence. Yeah. Yeah, that's that Absolutely. must be cool. Um, 
let's talk about CRC. Um, I found you on Facebook like five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, I didn't know what to do with my life. I had worked at a at a, a, a Gator Country, a reptile park, and then I was working at Crocodile Encounter. I was like, I want to see crocodiles in the wild. So I like found you all on Facebook. I was just like looking on Facebook, like crocodile research or like, and then I stumbled upon y'all. I don't know if y'all had an internship program at that point. It just started. Andrew. I just, I like got y'all right at the right time, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and I hit y'all up and you're like, yeah, come on down. It was that easy. And it was bad. Yeah. <laughs> you're our first intern ever. Yeah. Very, very proud of that. Um, I was very nervous. I remember walking up. Y'all are at the Savannah guest house. Right. And, um, oh, that's pleasing. right. And I was yeah. so nervous to meet you. <laughs> and Sean Halfleck was Sean, there as and, well. Yeah. And Sean was, he was a familiar name. I, I didn't know any scientists at that time. I just, I knew Sean from um, TV and stuff. Yeah. And I was like super nervous. Uh, but then y'all were like all like later on in the night, we're like drinking somewhere or something. It's like totally chill. <laughs> But we saw, went and saw Sam and Gilly um, in the pond and Mm -hmm. they were saying Steve Irwin like was there. That's where he filmed. And I was like, so cool. Yes. Yeah. He met Sam Gilly and Mad Max and. um, Big croc at the Blee Zoo. Brutus. Yep. Yeah. That was awesome. Yeah. It's, I got a very unique experience. I don't know if all the other interns. (laughs) <laughs> have gotten the experience i got the very raw first intern experience going to chicky bowl like it you you set the bar so high and all of us were like fuck not every intern is gonna have this experience right. like but i mean there have been some interns where they've gotten some like every intern is which makes me feel really good. I've, I've had so many that are like, this went above and beyond what I could ever imagine. Like I make sure everyone has just one like life blowing, life changing, um, adventure per se here. And it's not like it's hard to schedule in because Belize is just full of adventures. Yeah. But like for you, you were, it was because of you were like, we have to extend our internships at least to a minimum of two weeks because it a just, week goes by. Yeah, it went it went by way too fast. It really did. So fast, yeah. so fast. But <laughs> yeah, you like we met at Savannah Guest House, which is right next to Belize Zoo. Then you went to Chickabool, and it is not anyone can just go into Chickabool. Like it's a protected forest. It's where we went. It's only rangers that go there. Yeah. And you slept under Scarlet Macaw Nest. Yeah. Uh, Wildest we, place I've ever seen in my life. I mean, that is, that's raw jungle there. And I mean, where they just check in with the satellite phone because (laughs) we are away from everything. There's crocodiles. Didn't we see a fertilance on that? We saw the fertilance when we went back to Placentia. Oh, okay. But I remember that's what we saw the tapir. We got the indigo snake Um, there. Indigo snake. um, snake. I can't remember if it was the trip with you, but we did see some type of big cat. It's a big cat. Right across the river. Um, yes. Yes. Just, we're coming back in after a night of crop catching, and it was just there, right across from where we were camping. Yes. And it had to yeah. be a, a jaguar or a, or a puma. One exactly. Super rare. My first big cat yeah. ever. I've never seen a big cat other than that time. Yeah. And so that was amazing. And then we go back to Placentia, 
And then it's Fertilance. We caught a huge hybrid croc, if you remember that. Like, it was just like... You know what I remember? The croc stuff was great, but like the stuff that sticks out was like doing uh, yoga in the jungle with you or whatever weird, some some workout or something. (laughs) Do you remember how all you guys worked (laughs) out? We like catch crocs all night. I'm like tired as fuck. And you're like, we're going to exercise right here in the jungle. I didn't have very good nutrition. Like my stomach was jacked up the whole time and I like felt like crap the whole time because there was nothing like they cooked rice and I could eat rice. But those fry jacks, I didn't know I was allergic to wheat, but like I am allergic to wheat. So I just like really jacked up, but they tasted good. Those fry jacks. Um, And you made fry jacks. Made fry jacks. Yeah, I was with uh, Roberto. I guess he he kind of fell off the map. I haven't seen him around on social he's... media. God, I think he's. I guess he doesn't work for the forest department anymore. No, he was working for the Rangers out there. Oh, he was okay. Okay. I yeah, yeah, yeah. He was working for the Rangers out there. Um, God, he's working down south now. I can't remember oh, okay. where though. He's working with another organization. I really liked um, then the boat captain. What was his name? Blue? No. Wait, wait. In Placencia or Chickable? Chickable. It wasn't blue. I don't think so. Oh, oh. Um. I can't oh, remember God. his name. <laughs> Francisco. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, no. he's still there. He's still there. So we're going back to Chickable in June, maybe. Noted. <laughs> June or July. Um and. And not only are we going back for croc stuff, we are also, so CRC, so again, we do more than crocs, like we're doing manatee stuff. I just did a drone survey earlier today for manatee. Yep. Uh, manatee today, uh, like while I was kayaking, that was really fucking amazing. Um, but we do the manatee, we do parrots, we have game camera traps. Um, we're helping Panthera now in regards of identifying some of the local Jaguar here, but Jane, our new research coordinator, she's actually one of two monkey experts here in Belize. And so when we go to Chickable, we're going to be doing monkeys by day, crocs by night. Can I weasel my way in on this? (laughs) Huh? Can I weasel my way in on this? Uh, yes. (laughs) So I told Chandler, I told Chandler, um, about some of these trips yeah. and I was just like, I was just talking to him the other night. I was like, dude, we got to go to Belize together and, and oh go God. down and hang out in Marissa. It'd be oh a lot of fun. It, it would be a lot of fun and you would probably almost kill me again. <laughs> Why did I fun. almost kill you? When it was you, Jared and Matt, when you came down your second time, oh, second time. Oh, the big, the big croc. No, I'm just saying we were, it was like party work, party oh. work, seven days. <laughs> yeah. And I realized, shit, I'm not in my early twenties anymore. And I remember, yeah. I think that it was, was after, oh yeah, you guys, you guys definitely made me feel like I was in my early twenties <laughs> when that happened. I was dying after you left. I told Chandler too. I was like, yeah. he almost killed me with alcohol. <laughs> I blame that on Jared mainly. <laughs> that was a, that was a fun trip it wasn't, was chick- wasn't chickable but um that was fun it was just fun it was just fun um yeah but chickable so we'll do monkeys we'll do spider and howler monkeys and chickable and then we'll do crocs at night and i think we're s- planning to stay there for three to five nights 
Okay. And also with Jane, because so we are eventually, it's probably now, you know, COVID just keeps changing things. Um, and I don't want to rush or push something when everyone is not really ready for it. But I do, I am going to start a primate program in within the CRC through Jane. And so that internship, it, 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 in a sense, will be like a separate internship, but there's one of the local places near us called monkey river i don't know if you came with us to monkey river Uh, the name is familiar i think you talked about it a lot but i don't know if we went there so it's about 45 minutes on a boat south of us and um so it's called monkey river because there's tons of howlers there but it's also a fantastic place for croc work so what i was talking with jane is that we'll do a separate like primate program and we haven't really discussed how long the interns would be here for. It might be something where you at least have to be here for a month, but um, you would mainly be over at Monkey River. And again, you'll be doing howler stuff during the day. Um, so pretty much it would be like maybe two days out of the week, you'd be doing croc stuff and the rest of the time it'd be the howlers just so that I can collect that data. Um, so there'll be a little bit of a mix of crocodile work there, but then, so also with Jane, so again, we, we do want to initiate this countrywide survey of spider and howler monkeys. And so we're, we'll be starting that in Chickable and then we're also going to be collaborating with foundation for wildlife conservation at runaway Creek nature reserve that is close to the Belize Sioux in central Belize. Um, we just assisted in, in releasing some rehab howler monkeys and, but in this area, there are caves in which we are going to find out whether or not crocodiles are permanently living in there or they're just temporary residents. So next month, um, or actually in two weeks, I'm doing a preliminary survey, but in February, there's a cave ecologist coming down from Arizona and we're going to go spelunking in these caves. He's mainly looking at the insects and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm going to be concentrating on the crocodiles. And I have a picture of me in 2009 with crocodile tracks and in this cave, because I went to these caves or there's like six caves. And so I went into one of these caves, we found crocodile tracks and I took a picture, but I'm not thinking, oh, this is so unique and cool and stuff. And then Matt Shirley comes out with his cave crocodiles in Gabon. Yeah. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like, uh, super cool. <laughs> I could have had something cool, like, <laughs> but whatever. Yeah. So anyways, I've actually been talking, like Matt and I are really good friends. Yeah. So I've been talking to Matt because I don't like to reinvent the wheel. If someone's kind of already done something similar that I'm interested in doing now here in Belize, you know, what did oh, you go through? Yeah. What obstacles did you go through? Like, yeah. Let, let's get the process rolling. I don't need to go through all the hiccups that you did. Yeah. So um, he's helped me out with like, with some advice in regards to that. Do you uh, think there are populations of crocodiles possibly living in the dark? So we, I mean, nobody has looked at not, not in Belize, yeah. not in, no one has really gone deep into these caves. Now what's also fucking cool is I've always loved Indiana Jones and I've always thought like, <laughs> get back to Indiana Jones. <laughs> we're going to go back to Indiana Jones. Yeah. Oh my God. I need to find a fucking cool hat. Like I know <laughs> super dorky. 
but I need to find an Indiana Jones yeah. style hat to wear into these fucking caves because <laughs> in the Maya culture, crocodiles connected the underworld and the entrance to the underworld were caves. And the Maya actually believed that when you saw a crocodile in the cave, it was waiting for the spirit of someone that had just recently deceased. And then that crocodile would take that spirit to the underworld where the spirit would reunite with its ancestors and the gods. So not only is just this a cool ecological, biological possible discovery that there are these crocodiles permanently living in caves, we are likely going to run into some Maya art, some Maya artifacts that have not been seen for hundreds of thousands of years because we know that the Maya utilize caves for various ceremonies, including human sacrifice. And during a preliminary survey, we found Maya pottery that no one had probably seen in hundreds of years. So when you deal with that information, when you find a, a new anthropological um, thing like that, yeah, so we're just gonna, do you get an anthropologist involved? What do you do? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We'll absolutely get an anthropologist yeah. involved. But this is where I'm like, I'm about to live out Indiana Jones. <laughs> like, I am That's awesome. so excited because, again, this is just not about the crocodiles. Like, there's a huge cultural aspect about this and component. Yeah. And the other cool thing is no one has ever mapped these caves before. So going in with the cave ecologist, he's bringing someone down so that we can, so I'll be part of, in a sense, I mean, sure, maybe the Maya knew these caves, but in our- Kind of a pioneer of of Belizean cave discovery. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm so excited. I am so excited. That's kind of like your, for current stuff, that's kind of what you're thinking about a lot right now is the cave stuff. Oh yeah. I'm all about this cave stuff. Cause this also just kind of goes back to what I was saying as well as I've always been interested in, in the interaction between crocodiles or wildlife and people, because this whole cave system really can bring that together, the caves and the crocodiles. And for all I know, maybe there's, we're going to find crocodile style art in these caves, knowing that the Maya believed crocodiles were the guides to the underworld yeah and so i am yeah i'm so excited for plenty of undescribed invertebrates and other stuff down there too he so the cave ecologist came down right before covid hit and he did discover four new invertebrate species that's cool so i mean that's super cool i don't need to be part of that (laughs) like you do you yeah right (laughs) uh we could uh there are going to be people listening that, um, you know, are, are young wildlife professionals and, and or people that want to get into it. If they're not sold on, on the CRC experience, internship experience yet, um, do you want to do you have anything else to say about the internship program? How badass it is. <laughs> I think we already covered enough, but. Um, I mean, again, we definitely provide an experience and adventure. I mean, it's really grown since you've been with us. Um, I, to me too, I've kind of started to say it's an apprenticeship almost like I, a mentorship. It's very much a mentorship. Like you are one of the very best mentors I've had very first time doing research. It was a little shaky. I was very bad. It was very bad. They know how to use a GPS. GPS? (laughs) Not even how to use a GPS. It was terrible. 
I felt so bad about that. <laughs> that. Like it put a stain on my experience there a little bit. Cause I was like one of the top croc researchers in the world thinks I'm a total dumbass. <laughs> it really, it bugged the hell out of me anyway, but it was overall that, you know, the experience overcame the, uh, that a negative emotion, but yeah, overall the experience was amazing. <laughs> But yeah, so I, you're not a dumbass. Oh my gosh. Um, it was, yeah. So with this mentorship, so, you know, we, we do presentations, we go over the various scientific methods. Um, we teach you how to put snares together, knots. Um, now I'm also including how to fly the drone, how to conduct drone surveys, um, you know, the game camera traps. I've had a couple of interns even ask about how to write papers and, yep. you know, how, how to just to go over the methodology. So you're not just scrubbing a boat or just doing the, the, the bottom of the, of the workload. Like you yeah. get involved, you are participating and taking the data, you are participating and capturing some of the animals. Like we teach you how to do all that. And, you know, again, it, it is very much a mentorship. Like we're putting a lot of our time into making you feel, get that confidence you need to pursue a career in wildlife, as well as just feel like you have a strong foundation. Yeah. Uh, we've had a couple of interns come through as well as volunteers. And I, um, we're publishing papers. Cause I also know that's really important. If you're going to go to grad school, you got to be competitive and having papers that helps a lot. And I know that has helped some of our previous interns get that job or get into that lab. And I do, I feel I want to do what was given to me. Um, Ruth Elsie, I I was telling someone this, but I've had various mentors for various reasons. And maybe I just was lucky enough or saw something, these people that I reached out and out to them enough. Like I, Dr. Ruth Elsie, again, an amazing mentor, uh, Louise Sigler from Dallas. Love Louise. Love Louise. I call him Theo Louise. Oh, I awesome. words so nice. can't describe how grateful I am that he is in my life. Like he is <clears throat> just the best mentor out so there. Humble. I mean, so the time. Humble. I just, oh, he, you know, and, and, and some of these, and you know, my Dr. Armin Curris, he's been really great for me, um, as well. And there's this other guy named Ed Clark. He's been amazing. Um, but they all gave their time when needed. If you asked for help, if you, they were there for you. And so I, and I think that built a lot of confidence in me. So it's just like, for me, I saw how that changed my life. And I want to do that for somebody else because I do realize not enough young scientists get enough support. And then you have these amazing, passionate people leave the field just because they never, they, they, they felt they weren't good enough just because they didn't have the right people. And one of our last interns that just came through, he, he did mention like he was on the lowest of the low, like he didn't make it through vet school. And I was just talking to him about stuff and he, like, he did say one thing I did gain out of the CRC was confidence. And like, yeah. Yeah, that might not like, just because that didn't work out, doesn't mean I'm a failure. It just means that there's something that's more suitable for me out there. And that's something I always tell people, like it, it has not been smooth sailing for me. 
whatsoever. I went through a lot of challenges. I went through a lot of hiccups. I will be quite honest, uh, as a woman and as a woman of color, a minority, I have gone through some fucking shit and I've seen young women and minorities leave science because of the lack of support or how they just felt they weren't good enough. Yeah. And by hell, I will not allow anyone that comes through to me. And I don't, I don't care what color you are. I don't care what gender, like I want to make sure that I empower you. And so that's also part of our mentorship. It's just not about the scientist scientific aspect. It's also about building that inner, finding that inner strength and confidence that yes, you can do this, you know, like, and just feeling that you will always be part of a community that's there to support you. Science, the science is very intimidating. You know, it, um, it's, it can seem rather elitist sometimes and just oh, absolutely. scary. Yeah. And so people like you are so valuable and it must be cool to be in a position now to provide mentorship. And I love role it. Model. I, yeah. I love it. And there's been times where it's like, I'm, you know, I'm busy. I remember I was supposed to go somewhere um, or someone invited me to something. I was like, oh, I can't, I have this master student or I have someone coming in. Everyone's just kind of like, why are you wasting your time on students? And it's like science and conservation will never progress if we don't teach the next generation. If we don't invest in the next generation, it's always just going to be this slow progress because we're so egotistical. We need to let go of the ego. Like if we're truly going to make a difference, it's not just about us, but it's also investing in the next generation. Yeah. Good stuff. We're about an hour and a half in. Um, And I'm low on my whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's get some closing stuff here. Um, Most memorable experience working with crocodiles when miriam boucher and i my old research coordinator my old master student when we were probably about 10 to 15 feet away from a truly problematic american crocodile that was about 11 to 12 feet and we were in water so um what happened was uh, knew about this crocodile had, you know, very habituated to, to people because it had been fed. We knew it had attacked workers in this area, but the workers were told to be hush hush. Mm. Uh, someone was also utilizing this crocodile for a tourist attraction. So we were in the area to do croc work mm-hmm. and we're in this cove and our boat couldn't go in the cove because it was so shallow. And we were in the territory of this very large croc. Uh, We weren't too scared. Uh, Miriam and I were like, all right, let's jump in the water and like, see if we can get this three footer. Like we see the eye shine and we go in, but the three footer just wiggled its way through the mangroves, like onto land and we couldn't get to it. Okay. We're lost. Not a big deal. And we turn around. And as I turn around, I get the eye shine of a croc and it's the, it's the two eye shines and they're very far apart. Yeah. Like, Miriam, he's here. Oh. She's like, what? And I was like, do not make any fast motion. We cannot act like scared prey right now. And that's something that I learned that, you know, in regards of like, if you start being frantic, you, again, you're, you're being submissive and that animal 
is going to get more curious and that animal might have more of that strength within to possibly do something that can cause harm. So I was like, being, being the, the mama croc in this situation, right. Miriam's my, I think she was my student at that point. Yeah. So Miriam get behind me. I had a snare pole. So I'm thinking of this croc went after me. Like if anything, if it opened up its jaws, I was just going to put yeah. the snare yeah. pole in its mouth. And I was like, Miriam get behind me. I, the bow captain is again, he's, he's a good bit of ways. And I just very calmly, cause you don't, you can't show fear. Tony, the crocs here. I need you to get the boat as close as possible to us. And this croc is just staring at us and we're just staring at it. And I was like, Miriam, we are going to slowly walk towards the boat right now. And so we start walking and we're just head on, head on. And he's slowly creeping up to us. And the boat is having to pull on the mangroves. Cause again, it's so shallow yeah. pulling on the yeah. mangroves to get as close. And we're getting as close. And Miriam was behind. I was like, Tony. And like, I, I'm not turning my head. I facing the crocodile and it's slowly creeping up on us. And Miriam, uh, on the count of three, you jump in that boat. Tony, you grab her and it was a one, two, three, and they grab Miriam, you know? And so of course there's a little bit of splashing. So he's like, Oh, what's going on? And then it's just, yeah, he gets a little excited and I'm just slowly moving. I was like, you guys on three, one, two, I had a superpower and just jumped and they just grabbed me and pulled me into the boat. And that the splashing I did seem to wig out the croc, but I like, that was, that croc came so close to us. Like, I mean, that was probably eight feet away. And this is a crocodile. Like this is a truly problematic crocodile. I was like, that was, that was one of the most intense experiences I've ever had. Yeah. And, uh, let's, let's end on a, um, just a closing message for conservation, like get for people that just aren't excited about wildlife you know, give a good sell for crop conservation if you want. Um, you know, so I'm like thinking of what we do with our community here. Um, I very much, I am not trying to make everyone love crocodiles because it's not going to happen. It is not going to happen, but I can educate them. Um, and so for those people that are like, oh, conservation or animals or, uh, 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 you know, no one wants to be ignorant. And so with that, with saying that, you know, change that ignorance to, to education and appreciation um, and appreciation as well, you know, because the more you educate yourself about them, the more you're like, oh, Hey, like that's kind of, that animal's kind of cool. Yeah. Oh, Hey, that animal is culturally significant. And one thing that I've seen is that if, again, using that culture, people are big about their culture because it's their identity. And we say, if we lose the Jaguar, if we lose the crocodile, think of the United States and the bald eagle went extinct. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a knife into the American heart. And it almost happened too. (laughs) And exactly. And so you know, educate yourself. We can coexist with these animals. It just takes a little bit of effort. And do we truly want to be 
the generation um, in which we have to tell our children 10 to 15 years from now, oh, we used to have giraffes. Oh, we used to have jaguars. Oh, we used to have that, but we were careless. And guess what? We left you with nothing. Like what kind of legacy is that? I feel as a parent, uh, I owe it to my daughter to, and every parent says this, right? You always want the best for your children. Yeah. Well, that also includes the environment as well as wildlife, because we are very intertwined with nature. And if you are not contributing to ensuring the conservation of the environment, as well as to wildlife, to, to me, you're not looking out for the best for your child and that and you're robbing your child of truly a fruitful future. And I feel any parent and any adult, because every adult, yeah, you might not want a child, but you've got a niece, I'm sure you've got a nephew or a young cousin, you know, think, think if you truly want the best for them, like this is the greatest gift that you can give to them and assisting in the conservation of environment and wildlife. Yeah. That's a good, I think that's a good one to end on. Thank you so much, Marissa for your mentorship for me personally, and also everything you do for uh, conservation. Of course, <laughs> of course, my little brother, or I guess my little son, since you call me mama crack. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I came up with that. It's kind of cheap. It's okay. It's the one picture we took together and uh, I had a baby crocodile. And I'm like, I'm your mentee or is that what you call me? I don't know. But yeah, I look up to you a lot. Thank you so much for everything, Marissa. Yeah, of course. Any, anytime. And I'll hopefully see you later this year. Yes. Check a ball. All right. See you later. Bye.